is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to screw up. You should always do your own homework and let's know the world. This is, this is starting off really good. Welcome back to the Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, several co-hosts. That was Stuart Brigham. This is Dr. Paul Williams. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> and Dr. Kate Grant from England. Oh, yes. Yes. So we, the land of angles. I like how Stuart's still struggling with uh, figuring out if his mic is turned on two years into this. Um, well, it's because somehow you're going through the intro and I can't even stop you anymore. <laughs> you're just on autopilot. <laughs> well, we have a new newcomer to the show tonight, Dr. Kate Grant. Kate, did you want to give the audience like a quick one-liner about yourself? Yeah, so um, I am... Uh, I've been listening to Curbsiders for about a year, and um, I'm a GP with a special interest in genitourinary medicine, which in normal language means sexually transmitted diseases, but yep. we have a special name for it here <laughs> in the UK. And um, so I have a background in um, primary care and um, drugs and alcohol, homeless medicine, occupational disability assessment, and um, drugs and alcohol. And uh, I live on a farm. <laughs> I've got two girls, and my alter ego is an artist. And I've basically taken the last couple of years just to paint. And sit exams. Yes. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of our audience has seen you on Twitter or has seen your artwork in our show notes. And thank you for all that, Kate. Oh, you're welcome. I like the comics. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> well, this is, this, is a, this is a long episode, so why don't you set it up for us and we will, we will get, on, get on to our conversation with our expert. Okay, so um, we've been really looking forward to doing an episode on valvular heart disease with uh, Dr. Eli Gelfand from Harvard. And um, he's basically going to run down for us um, the different types of valve disease, uh, the medications that we use, the different surgical procedures that are available, um, all those questions that you've ever had about uh, antibiotic prophylaxis. And, um, and we're going to give you a case study that's going to really highlight how complicated it can be. And just to give the full bio here, Dr. Eli Gelfand is the Section Chief of General Cardiology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He is the founder and director of the Russian Cardiovascular and Latino Cardiovascular Health Clinics at BI Deaconess and the former Associate Cardiovascular Fellowship Director at the Beth Israel Medical Center. Dr. Gelfand is also the Director of Medical Services for Boston Symphony Hall, the home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. He is the the Cardiology Section Editor for Dynamed Plus, which is a multidisciplinary medical reference platform. Uh, If you haven't used it, it's kind of like up to date. Uh, I actually use it quite frequently for my practice. He serves as a clinical educator for many multicenter clinical trials at the Timmy Study Group in Boston and as an investigator of several ongoing clinical trials in valvular heart disease and clinical cardiology, which is why he is quite qualified to speak with us tonight about valvular heart disease. That's right. <laughs> I, I thought you said it was very easy to come up with puns about cardiology, Stuart. Yeah. Aorta, no. <laughs> <laughs> that Cut was... all of this out. Cut all of it. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Dr. Gelfand. Thanks so much for joining us. Good evening. Great to be here. As we just said, we're going we're gonna to call you Eli from here on out. Uh, just, you know, just to keep it casual, right? Right, Paul? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Paul's always like rolling his eyes, uh, which I could see on Skype here. So it's always a bit distracting for me. Uh, Eli, I'd like to start off asking you, can you give a one-liner to the audience? Just let them know who you are. I am a, um, a 42-year-old uh, right-handed cardiologist, uh, father of uh, two girls. I, I love classical music. Travel and photography. Yes, that's a one-liner. Excellent. 
what's so special about being right-handed as a cardiologist? I'm so I'm so perplexed. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely nothing. Unless you're <laughs> in, in which case, it also doesn't matter. Uh, and also just it signifies that perhaps you're less imaginative than some of your colleagues. I just read a bunch of neurology notes with my patients today, and they all <laughs> seem to indicate handedness. I like it. <laughs> that's, what I th- that's what I was thinking of immediately when you said that. It sounds like a neurology progress note. Uh, okay. Would uh, Kate, let's ladies yeah. first. What question would you like to ask? All right. I would like to ask Dr. Gelfin, have you ever been called to a cardiac emergency in the community or a superstore or a plane? And if you have, what happened? Um, <laughs> I, 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 have, I, have, I have a couple of embarrassing stories about it. Uh, actually, yesterday I, um, I, I had two care of two community emergencies. Uh, none are really that serious. First one is actually on an ice skating ring. Somebody Somebody hit their head, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I had a lot of people giving me useless advice on the ice. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, later at the uh, at a at a concert, somebody had a what appears to be a vasovagal syncope, and that was um, a little more exciting, but uh, more up my alley. But everything turned out well. The, the plane story. The only plane story I can tell you is is uh, I once was uh, called on it along with probably about 15 other people flying to Boston to assist in an emergency. I didn't actually get to do anything. I think somebody had a little bit too much to drink, but I I did witness somebody questioning an actively helping physician about what their specialty was. And upon hearing that it was homology, there was a lot of uh, sneering and a lot of unhelpful comments. Oh my God. uh, That's the only, that's the only flight story I can tell you. Some elitism <laughs> among medical professionals on an in-flight emergency. You gotta love that. I was yeah, I was disgusted I, and went back to my seat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been um, I, I once came across this old lady who was crossing the road and she fell over like off the curbside and I was oh, that's a pun. And um so I crossed the road just to what, what I was going to, sorry, sorry, Matt, what, what she was going to do. And, um, and I heard this, this crunching noise and I said, stand back. I'm a doctor. I can help. And, um, I, I was outside this big superstore with, um, like bedding and stuff. And I got somebody to run in and grab this enormous duvet off the cat, off this bed, <laughs> put it over this lady. And we called for an ambulance. And when we got, when the ambulance arrived and I'd been telling everybody that she was going to be fine and reassuring this lady. Oh no. And and the sped was getting soaking wet in the pouring rain outside. And um, when the ambulance arrived, she just stood up and got on board. And I was thinking, no, 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 I'm sure you've broken something. And it was only when I picked up her bag that I realized there was this jar of like chicken tonight sauce and it had <laughs> smashed on the road. <laughs> and that was actually what I'd heard break. And it wasn't anything like a neck of femur or anything. I was kind of disappointed. <laughs> Your primary yeah. assessment missed that that uh, can mm. of chicken's chicken yeah. gravy or whatever it was. Chicken tonight, I know. Chicken tonight. <laughs> that story went the exact opposite of the way I was expecting. I thought yeah, the patient had died in the middle of the road, but that's <laughs> yeah. a much happier ending. Than- I was expecting flail chest or something. Um, I'm looking up chicken tonight. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Paul or Stuart, did you guys want to yeah. ask anything? <laughs> Paul, you want to ask about the books? No. I, I think I'm going to ask, what is the best advice that you've gotten as an educator? Oh gosh! <laughs> yeah, you know, I um, uh, many advice. I, I had very, very good mentors, and uh, a, a couple of things I think um, I always remember is uh, sitting down when you're talking to somebody, and sitting down when yeah. you're teaching. And uh, one of my best uh, late mentors, Dr. Mark Joseph, always uh, talked about sitting down when you're talking, when you're listening. And when you're basically doing most things medical, it's always best to sit down and, and take your time. So I always remember this. I try to sit down as much as possible. I even, <laughs> I even have extra stools in my, uh, in my uh, office exam room so I can, I can always sit down if there's an extra fellow or resident there. No, that's, that's great advice for life or with patients. Absolutely. So, so I hear sitting is new smoking. Is there anything that you want to admit on the, <laughs> the curbsiders? Right, right, right. Well, I don't, I mean, you know, it, with the, with the length of the appointments, I don't sit down for long, but I agree. I, I do combine that with a standing desk in my office. So yes. Excellent. Excellent. So I'm going to go ahead and steal, uh, Paul's typical question. Uh, is there any book that you think that every phys- physician should read and why? Yeah. You know, I, I heard that question in your prior episodes. I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I want to be prescriptive about it. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure there's a single book that every physician should be reading. Maybe some of the good books, book? some of the good where the wild things are is a pretty good 
introduction yes. to uh, uh, to books, I think, in general. And, and actually, not a bad book to be reread as an adult. You know, taking it completely differently. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do like uh, biographies. I don't know about you guys, but I love biographies and medical biographies, especially. I read a couple of biographies uh, relatively recently that I loved. One was um, uh, just a good, plain biography about somebody I've met, and that's uh, a biography of Dr. Eugene Bronwald by um, uh, by Tom Lee. I, I think it's called Eugene Bronwald and Rise of uh, Medicine or Rise of Modern Medicine. Pretty good. He's a very interesting individual. Of course, he's alive and well and, and working at uh, age probably 80 or so. Mm-hmm. And I have the privilege of meeting him a few times. And he's uh, just an example of uh, um, kind of a, a man who is both a legend and also very down to earth and had a, just an incredible career in, uh, in medicine and cardiology and both science and you know, leadership and teaching and just influencing an incredible amount of people. The other biography is sort of polar opposite of this, not in the sense that the person wasn't great, but but it's more of a detective story, and that's um, a biography of um, uh, Sir William Halstead, and many of you may have read this. I think it's called Genius on the Edge. I, I don't unfortunately remember who the author is. came out maybe two, three years ago, and of course it documents not only Halstead's um, achievements as a, as a surgeon and as a, as a professor, as a co-founder of um, Hopkins, but also... Um, as a drug addict, um, mm. somebody who battled uh, uh, cocaine and opiate addiction for most of his life and had to work through this and had to uh, hide it and ultimately uh, died uh, because of it or you know despite it or together with it. Uh, fascinating read, very well written. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Those uh those sound like good books. I I. I have not gotten into biographies. I, I don't know why. I have not read too many. So maybe those are good ones to start with. I don't know. I, I love history and biographies. It's uh, one of my weird passions. Yeah. Highly recommend the Halstead biography. Well, I'm going to add it to my list right now. There we go. Just with Chicken Tonight right next to it. Well, we go. well speaking of lists, I think uh, it's time for some picks of the week. Hmm. Are we still playing the music? I haven't listened to the last couple episodes. Yeah, the music is there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Kate. My kids can sing along to the jingle now. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, would you like to give a pick of the week? Yes, I'd love to. And my pick of the week is a book called The Poisoner's Handbook. And this is by Deborah Blum. And she was like an investigative journalist. She actually wrote a history of forensic medicine and development of forensic medicine and poisons um, from like the time of sort of prohibition forward. And it was basically when the police force were trying to handle in New York all the all the murders and suicides and the, the unexplained deaths. And they they had um like police coroners but they didn't have medics doing it so they would just kind of guess as to how people had died and they couldn't really pinpoint anything and it's basically about how a couple of um sort of like in chemists came around to figuring out how to detect the presence of chemicals within the body you know starting off with the sort of like the the sort of like um things like arsenic and then progressing through to that the chemical the alkaloids and and so on and um, wood alcohol and it was just it just basically documented all the milestones and and their life what they did in their lifetime was literally incredible um over a base of their, their sort of professional working lives like 30 40 years of chopping up dogs livers and digging up bodies <laughs> and, you know literally and and they they would um you know so they they'd gone right past feeding somebody the dead person's last meal that was old, old hat yeah and and then they just basically you know had dead bodies and they they just they just learned they made it up they worked out how to do all these tests to to figure it out it's it's an incredible book and um so if you want to get a biography it's a biography of the 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 two main guys who developed forensics in the time of um the jazz era in new york that is a good tease for we have an upcoming episode on toxicology with the uh, dantastic Mr. Tox and Howard. At least Brilliant. I think that's going to air after this one. So, uh, all right, Paul or Stuart, did you guys have a question? Uh, a uh, pick of the week. I have a question for Paul. Do you want to go first? Sure, I'll go. This is last minute. Now that I'm freed from the tyranny of of watching a movie every day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've been able to actually uh, delve into Netflix a little bit. And I have you guys heard of uh, the mockumentary series American Vandal? Don't they still have I, movies? I've seen that. I don't know what it's about. I've I've been intrigued by what it is about, but I've never really looked into it. 
It is. So it's it's not for kids. So I'm sorry, Stuart's family and Matt's family, as far as that goes. <laughs> but it's basically it's it's a it's a it's a mockumentary about like the, in the vein of true crime documentaries, like um, like serial even. Uh, and so what happened is in a teacher's parking lot, someone painted uh, an obscene drawing on 37 cars, and the whole thing is this investigation, complete with reenactments, and like the the tone is perfect. At one point, the investigators worry that they've inserted themselves too much in the story, and it just it, it's so stupid. And then by the end of it, you become really emotionally invested in who painted these obscene things on cars, and like it's just it's it is absolutely brilliant. It is one of the best written things I've ever seen. The acting is amazing. Apparently, they got local talent, and if you like true crime, it is just the perfect parody of it. So if what, you, if you have what six is this hours called again? Run, it's called American Vandal, and I highly okay. recommend it. It it sounds interesting. All right. Stuart, I'm ready. Then, I'm almost ready to get talking about valves here. So, do you have a pick <laughs> of the week? It, it's it's oddly applicable to the current political situation, only because um, my my kids were asking me about uh, immigration, blah blah blah. So I, I said, "Hey, why don't you just go watch Gangs of New York?" And I said, "This is this is essentially a a nineteenth century uh, uh, commentary on um, on immigration. At least what happens when you completely ignore the uh, downstream effects of of immigration and or uh, assimilation of the immigrants. So I, I, I do think it's an interesting movie just in and of itself from, from a cinematic standpoint, but also from a narrative standpoint and somewhat of a political standpoint as well. I think it is, it's applicable and interesting. As an immigrant, I fully, fully approve of gangs of New York as a reflection of what it is to immigrate. <laughs> yeah. Well, totally applicable today, right? I think I need to go back and watch that one. I usually when I see <laughs> yeah, I, I, when I, I see the three hour it. price tag on a movie, I generally don't watch it. But uh, maybe I'll check that. So one you're out. probably not going to watch American Vandal with uh, what six hours, right? Well, if, okay. the, if it's yeah. split up, awkward yeah. silence. Got it. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, I'm just I had a different read on that movie, but that's a talk for a different day. Okay, Kate, <laughs> why don't you get us on track here? Uh, let's right. let's get a case from Cashlack Memorial just to kick things off here, talking about valvular heart disease. So, uh, Eli, I've got a case for you here, and um, this is a 25-year-old female. She's been diagnosed with a bicuspid aortic valve as a child, and she's been well until now. So she does regular fitness and running club, and her training partners notice that she can't complete her typical workout or keep up on her usual distance run. So she gets easily winded and lightheaded, and she gets breathless during sexual intercourse. Now, um, she's noticed that she's got swollen ankles, and she can't untie her gym shoes. She's been trying to train more more because she thinks she's unfit and this has actually made her feel worse and later on uh, in the discussion she also tells you that she's thinking of getting pregnant so what are your thoughts about this lady just uh, just uh, just what you want for like a 20 minute appointment uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she just throws in the pregnancy just as you're trying to stand just, up just <laughs> as she also uh, <laughs> mentions that she might want to get pregnant very soon yeah. um <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Well, I appreciate your starting with this case. Certainly, um, there's nothing quite like a straightforward, uh, short conversation with a patient. <laughs> I, 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 I don't hear groans, but I see groans uh, on my uh, on my Skype split screen. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, this is this is a challenging case. Actually, this is a the first case is very challenging. You know, where this is a 25 year old woman, so she has her whole life ahead of her. She has a known congenital pathology. And it sounds like in absence of something else that relatively obvious, she is developing uh, symptoms from her uh, bicuspid aortic valve. I have to say, this is a little early to develop symptoms from um, uh, bicuspid aortic valve uh, stenosis, at least. Um, so we, we're going to, I guess, assume for the purposes of the podcast that, that an echocardiogram is done and she indeed has severe aortic stenosis uh, with a bicuspid morphology. I think I think this is where you have to step back and figure out, um, um, you know, w what it is you, that that the patient uh, really wants right now, and uh, what's going to impact her life the most. And I think for for that, for now, you have to uh, um, put the the immediate pregnancy aside for now and just uh, diagnose her properly. And so we almost always start with uh, echocardiography. We uh, we're not going to delve into the details of echo, but let's just assume that she has severe. Um, aortic stenosis. She's clearly symptomatic from this. Um, you're going to want to make sure that she's not also anemic, that there's no pulmonary pathology, that there's no uh, uh, coexistent pathology, and this is purely severe aortic stenosis. And then you have to 
um, figure out what it is we're going to do about our AS um, in anticipation of the rest of our life and in anticipation of pregnancy. And so, I, you know, it's always a little bit difficult to, um, I think, to meet the patients and on the very first visit to tell them that they need surgery. Yeah, yeah. Intervention. Um, and and in, in truth, she doesn't need surgery this week or next week, but she's going to need surgery uh, within a few months. Um, and so you could easily start the conversation about the pathology and the eventual need for surgery. And then what I always like to do is to uh, bring these patients back relatively frequently in short intervals and, and really try to get them to the idea that they need an operation. Some patients are I think more receptive to the idea than, than others uh, early on. And some patients take a while to, to, uh, to realize that they need an intervention. What's your own internal dialogue going through your mind when you realize that she's this young? I mean, what, what yeah. are you projecting as far as what's going to happen to her in her lifetime? Well, you know, it, like, like how many interventions she's going to need and how, and how can you progress from one to the other? Right. Um, there, there are several things which uh, are, of concern here. Uh, one, of course, is the aortic valve itself, but then you have to step back and realize that, that she has a bicuspid uh, aortic valve, so there are several things that go along with it that you have to make sure she doesn't have. One is uh, an aortopathy. So everybody with an aortic valve, almost regardless, in fact, purely regardless of the aortic valve hemodynamics, has an aortopathy. They're at risk for um, progressive aortic dilation and uh, most worrisome for aortic dissection, which, of course, is a highly morbid um, mm -hmm. condition. Uh, and in addition, pregnancy, potential pregnancy, will exacerbate the risks of aortic dissection. Of course, aortic dissection in pregnancy is a complete disaster that um, mm -hmm. uh, you would like to avoid, if, if at all possible. Mm -hmm. So um, I am going to want to make sure that she doesn't have coexistent aortic dilatation. I want to make sure she's not uh, one of the a relatively small proportion of patients with a bicuspid valve who have coexisting um, aortic arch coarctation, uh, which will need addressing separately. And I'm going to want to make sure that that she, um, if she desires to get pregnant, she gets through pregnancy safely. Now, if she has severe aortic stenosis, we're going to advise against pregnancy at this time, and in fact, insist on. Um, her strongly considering a reliable form of contraception um, until the aortic valve situation is addressed. And then you have to make a, a tough decision as to what aortic valve intervention to offer her. Because, of course, um, when you're replacing a valve, then the, the choices are complicated. You can either get her a mechanical valve, which is not very desirable um, in somebody who gets pregnant, they're going to need to go in warfarin. There's a risk of warfarin embryopathy and anticoagulation during pregnancy can be done, but is relatively complicated and requires um, um, very, very close follow-up and is associated with both maternal and fetal risks and complications during delivery. Can be done, but you'd like to avoid it if at all possible. A bioprosthetic valve is, is a good option for um, an older patient uh, is also not an, an unreasonable option in somebody who wants to get pregnant and is younger, but you have to have a tough conversation, which basically boils down to, um, we, we can do this and you will likely get through pregnancy safely. In fact, that's probably the easiest way to get through pregnancy with a bioprosthetic valve, but this valve is not going to last you more than about 10 years. Uh, whereas the, the normal longevity of a bioprosthetic valve in an older patient can be up to 20 years. And we have some patients who are going on 30 years with an original bioprosthetic surgical valve. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, so that's a tough conversation. Then there's more, you know, what I call more exotic options for valve replacement. There's something called a homograft, which is basically a cadaveric um, aortic valve, which is a, uh, used to be a reasonable option for some patients, but the longevity is also not very good. And then uh, remember, there's this thing called the Ross operation or the Ross procedure, uh, which has fallen out of favor quite a bit, except for a few centers where we um, we take a uh, person's pulmonic valve and put it in the aortic position, and then we put a, a homograft in their native pulmonic valve position. So they basically end up with their own pulmonic valve 
in the aortic position. Mm -hmm. It's a a relatively complicated surgery, and and people have reported uh, reasonable outcomes up to 25 years, but it's done on very specialized centers and basically by select surgeons and is associated with, with, you know, reasonable degree of complications, especially um, coronary complications and complications on the pulmonic side. So uh, probably not a great option for most people. So you really don't have a a fantastic option Mm -hmm. um, in in terms of valve replacement, which in a 25-year-old leaves you with the possibility of a valvuloplasty. Now, we don't normally do valvuloplasties anymore that often for aortic stenosis, especially in older patients, because they don't last very long. But if it's feasible for a young person with a bicuspid valve, it's actually a pretty reasonable option to get them through pregnancy and then address a a definitive aortic valve intervention when they safely deliver. And if you do a valvuloplasty, this doesn't really require any anticoagulation. So and you'll talk that's what's about, going you'll talk ahead. About, uh, now, we'll really discuss all of these aspects with her at the first appointment. Uh, this <laughs> is my gosh, this, Kate, that was quite. <laughs> this Sorry. is what I'm thinking of is I'm pulling out that extra special stool from under the table. Yeah. To <laughs> Good thing you brought a stool with you to all your appointments. Mm. Well, listen, let's let's uh, step back a bit here. Uh, <laughs> when when you see a patient uh, in the office and you hear a heart murmur. How do you decide, does this patient have valve disease? Does this patient need an echo? Uh, Eli, if you could kind of just start us off with that, because I hear residents, uh, and, and even myself still, like I, it's still a little bit gray to me, who exactly needs to have an echo when I hear a murmur? And can we actually even back up further for the dum-dum internist who wasted a lot of time watching movies and didn't learn medicine that well? So when you... <laughs> When you tell a patient they have a murmur, can we just start very fundamentally, what are you telling them that that means? Because I feel like it causes a lot of anxiety among patients when you say, oh, I hear a murmur, their their eyes get real big. And then when I go to explain it, it does not satisfy them. So what, what do you say when you're explaining what a murmur is to a patient? Yeah, start with I'll, Paul's question, then we, can, then we can take mine. And then we can get to the 25-year-old female who's pregnant, who has uh, papillopathy. <laughs> Fair enough. And then she's got, she's got a coil in, so she can't get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God. Good, good. Um, you know, I actually rarely tell patients, uh, that I hear uh, a murmur and I, I try not to make big eyes about it. Uh, if I do, you know, we live in Boston with the Charles river here, which is uh, the kind of, kind of the ultimate lazy river. <laughs> so w- when I, when I do tell them that I hear a murmur or they come with a murmur, I basically tell them this is the difference between them, you know, a mountain brook and a lazy Charles river. Um, and that, um, you know, having, having whirling in your heart is not always, um, abnormal. In fact, um, you know, most people, when they get older, they do have uh, flow murmurs. Um, a lot of older folks have um, soft systolic murmurs of aortic sclerosis. Um, in general, if it's not a loud murmur and there's no uh, um, uh, concomitant signs of valvular disease, there's no carotid delay, there's no diastolic murmur, um, then an echo is not absolutely necessary. I, I have to tell you, as a, as a cardiologist, you know, it, all these people come with an echo anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's it's generally pretty difficult to get out of the internist's office. No offense, without uh, an echo being ordered uh, for a murmur. Although you know, we we do frankly do a lot of um, echoes, which are frankly normal. And somebody who reads a lot of echoes, I see a lot of echocardiograms from murmur, especially in younger people that are just completely normal. Uh, it, it it is uh, very normal for a young person to have a grade one systolic murmur, uh, the right upper sternal border. Uh, it, it, this is a physiologic flow murmur. I mean, it, it's, it's in, in resident notes, it's frequently called a systolic ejection murmur. Um, I'm not, I'm never quite sure what a systolic ejection murmur is. <laughs> um, but, but again, in, in absence of other signs of, of valve disease, in a young person, it's pretty normal. Diastolic murmurs or continuous murmurs are um, rarely, if ever, normal. Um, you, you really, sh- as a young person, should not have aortic regurgitation, much aortic regurgitation. So if you hear a diastolic murmur, uh, it's most frequently either AR or it's uh, mitral stenosis. And neither of these things should be left alone for long because they're usually associated with quite a bit of pathology. And from my reading, the most common symptoms with pretty much any of the valve, if someone's symptomatic, kind of fatigue, shortness of breath, maybe orthopnea, more, more sort of like heart failure symptoms. Right. Any yeah, Anything think, else that we should think of? 
I mean, I think in younger people, often it's exercise intolerance, sort of what this woman was, was exhibiting, you know, unable to keep up with others, mm-hmm. uh, you know, vague symptoms of fatigue, uh, you know, you know uh, trying to avoid things or finding yourself trying to avoid things like walking up the stairs, mm-hmm. having been previously active. Sometimes it's fairly subtle in young people, of course. Mm-hmm. And then, I, I, you know, I always try to remember that, that folks adapt to their situation and, you know, the concept of adapting to your hemodynamics cannot be overemphasized. Right. You know, if somebody's been um, going on daily walks for 20 years and now for no apparent reason, you know, no orthopedic problems, now they're watching TV more um, because, you know, maybe they don't feel as well when they come back from that walk. Um, that that worries me sometimes. And I'm sure it worries the internist as well. But you don't really, you don't really know it until you uh, dive a little bit deeper into what do people do um, in their daily life. And I, for one, am not ashamed to um, to ask folks, especially the ones who are retired. You know, what do you do all day? Just tell me what you do all day. <laughs> right. I, I don't think most people find it offensive. At least I haven't found them, um, found that question to be offensive to most people, and it really gives you a good idea of what their exercise limitations might be. Right. And just for our listeners, and to avoid maybe unnecessary echoes, do you mind just reviewing the criteria real quick, or what what would actually warrant? Obtain echocardiogram, what types of murmurs, what, what characteristics would actually prompt appropriate echocardiography? Yeah, you know, these honestly, these guidelines are, are made up. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no offense, but but uh, but really, you know, grade three and louder mur- systolic murmurs should warrant an echocardiogram. You know, diastolic murmurs, continuous murmurs should warrant an echocardiogram. Um, murmur with a sign of uh, heart disease should warrant an echocardiogram. I mean, the, the, you know, these are not these are not trial based. They're they're all consensus guidelines. So people uh, people are probably smarter than me who got together in a room and had a few drinks and decided that that was uh, yeah. warranted. <laughs> okay. And um, and and patients who've had a previous MI, you know, obviously that that would be you know people who've got previous cardiac history who now have a new murmur. Uh, right. I mean, I mean, this is this is all uh, for people who sort of never been diagnosed with any uh, with yeah. any valve disease. Obviously, the guidelines are very different for folks with established valve disease, and and there are specific um, frequency guidelines, which I'm not sure need to be remembered. Um, but they they range from you know uh, three to five years for you know mild valve disease, mild regurgitant valves, to um, you know, uh, every six months for somebody with severe mitral regurgitation, for example, whom we try to follow very carefully. I wanted to ask, I think maybe if we just keep talking in general terms about valves and then get back into some of the specific f- cases here, when when we get the echo back as an internist, what sort of things should prompt us to refer a patient for a murmur? I think obviously if the patient's in heart failure uh, and has pretty classic symptoms, then, then we would send them to, or if they're, they're having syncope or angina, we're going to send them to a cardiologist. But what, what are some of the things on echo we should look for? I think the general rule of thumb should be, um, most people with severe valvular disease, whether it be severe stenosis or severe regurgitation, um, even if asymptomatic or if formally asymptomatic should probably see a cardiologist at least once because, you know, some of the subtle guidelines or some of the subtle signs may not be apparent on, on, a, on a brief examination that some of them require further, um, further investigations, stress testing, catheterization, especially in cases of aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation where the guidelines are relatively rapidly evolving in the, their new treatments. So I would say if, if your patient has severe aortic stenosis, severe mitral regurgitation, severe aortic regurgitation, they probably should see a cardiologist, um, if for nothing else, than just to get acquainted. Because chances are, unless they're extremely elderly, or if if they're the kind of patient who sort of would never want any intervention, they, they will require something uh, down the road. And again, um, I can't emphasize enough that as a as a specialist, it's a little bit difficult to meet the patient and then ten minutes later yeah. tell them that they need their um, heart <laughs> opened right. and something. Some, some fashion. So it's always nice to see the patients when they're feeling well and you can establish some, some sort of therapeutic relationship, as they say. Yeah. It, it was, from, what I was, from what I was looking at, it looks like the ACC AHA has some nice flow sheets that sort of 
their their guidelines tell you based on the valve, you kind of you can follow it down, see how severe your patient is, and how often they need to be followed with an echocardiogram. Usually, right. if if there's a cardiologist there, but it it looks like it could be if it's if it's severe and and they're they're close to needing a replacement, it's every three to six months, and if it's intermediate, it's like every twelve months or something like that, and if it's not that bad, it's every three to five years. Are those kind of general rules of thumb, or do you have a yeah, again, you know, I, I, I try to, honestly, I try to resist these prescriptive guidelines about the frequency of, of okay. intervention. Some people who uh, are completely symptomatic and have been stable for, for years, even with severe mitral regurgitation, I don't mind seeing them once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, and it all depends on the comfort of the internist and the comfort of, of the cardiologist. Sometimes the internist knows them much better, frankly. Right. Uh, and I certainly don't mind um, uh, leaving it to the uh, primary care doctor with good communication <laughs> yeah. skills. To, uh, to manage that. Um, I, I have to say, you know, I, I heard on some podcasts you've, uh, you've asked for good app recommendations and um, the ACC guideline um, uh, app is actually quite good. It's free. It's on acc.org or in the, the, the Play Store or Apple Store. Uh, it's, it's absolutely worth downloading for the, um, um, for the trainees and for the practicing internists. It has very um, nice flow sheets on, on kind of what to do with your cardiac patients, not just for valve disease, but for um, lipid management and hypertension management with all the uh, insanity of the uh, guideline changes. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, we're fully but, aware. Cool. Uh, I, I wanted to ask, medication-wise, how how good are we, once we've identified that someone has valvular heart disease, how, how much can we actually do to prevent it from getting worse? You know, that's a tricky question. Um, as far as making the valve morphology worse or better, uh, or I should say preventing progression of valve disease, we, you know, we don't really have that much. Uh, there, there've been, uh, attempts at, at studying, um, anti-proliferative medications, statins, even, um, even bisphosphonates for delaying progression of, of, mm-hmm. um, particular stenotic disease like aortic stenosis, but those trials have largely been disappointing. Uh, at least in, when you look at them as a whole. And I think the problem there is, is a common one in, in that uh, you are basically starting too late. Mm-hmm. So if we had a, a way to identify, you know, which patient with a slightly thickened aortic valve would develop aortic stenosis, and we currently don't know that, and if we started a, perhaps a statin, perhaps bisphosphonate, perhaps some other therapy that we haven't studied yet, we may be able to delay progression. But we're starting... Um, in patients with extremely ossified valves, which are not not quite severely narrowed yet, and and the, there's really not a lot of room to prevent progression. Now, you know, certainly in in patients who've uh, uh, suffered structural valve deterioration from a specific problem like endocarditis, for example, the situation is different, and then we have. Uh, specific guidelines to prevent recurrent endocarditis um, with antibiotics, uh, and we can make some difference there. So most of the medication treatment for patients with valve disease really centers around controlling symptoms. Um, but I have to say here as well, really the, the the primary valve lesion I would say that benefits from medical treatment is uh, mitral stenosis where you can really delay the need for intervention by quite a bit by judicious use of diuretics, uh, anticoagulation, and, uh, and rate control of atrial fibrillation, or just plain rate control during exercise with you know, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. And I guess perhaps also a little bit in tricuspid regurgitation, where a lot of it is often volume-dependent and uh, fairly aggressive diuresis can reduce TR. Most other lesions, uh, you're really not making much of a difference with medications. And if you have to, you know, think hard about which medications to put uh, the patient on with, with, say, severe aortic stenosis and heart failure, you're really thinking about the wrong thing. You should be thinking about how to fix that aortic valve, not, you know, what dose of furosemide they should they do best on. Yeah, I was reading about that. That that was something we had identified earlier because it, it's always something that, that people point out. And, uh, Paul, Paul and I were kind of, uh, speculating about this beforehand, but basically my understanding is the left ventricle is hypertrophied 
in and and the cavity size can be smaller in severe aortic stenosis so they're already not getting great filling or preload and if you decrease the preload further they just can't get enough blood across the valve is that how you think about it or is there am i missing some subtlety no 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 i mean um I wouldn't dare tell you that you're missing any subtlety. <laughs> no, I'm it's no problem. You can tell me, sir, please. Uh, I'm, I'm in your house as a guest, of course. The but, audience loves it when I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you're wrong. I just think that, again, uh, if you're trying to you know, play with diuretics in severe aortic stenosis because your patient's uh, um, you know, suffocating, you really should be fixing the valve and, yeah. and playing less with diuretics. Okay. Mm-hmm. And not, not, not to say that if a person's decompensated in the, in the intensive care unit, you shouldn't be you know, fixing their heart failure. Um, but uh, I see some enthusiasm on the, on the quotes. <laughs> yeah, uh, Stuart, explain yourself. Well, no, because Paul basically rubbed this in your face earlier, too. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You're just reveling in me being uh, missing the bigger picture. All right, good. It's a good learning point for the audience and for myself. So thank you. You're welcome. Well, but, but I, say, I mean, we, we may be able to talk a little bit about mitral stenosis later on, but there's, you know, mitral stenosis is a nice example of, of, of relatively simple physiology where you can make uh, a difference with, with medication. But I would say that's just about the only valve lesion where you can make people feel a lot better with meds. Okay. Perfect. Can I just quickly flip that on its head and just say, are there absolute any complete no-nos medication-wise when you're talking about something with mitral stenosis? Are there things that you just want to be sort of like um, deprescribing for people? Um, I, I don't know about actively deprescribing. I would have to say in, in the rush of enthusiasm for direct oral anticoagulants for atrial fibrillation, let's not forget that, that these medications are not approved for patients with mitral stenosis. Now, I, I have to say the guidelines or the societies have, have introduced more confusion than anything when the direct oral anticoagulants first came about, and, uh, you know, with a relatively blanket, uh, vague statement that, that these are approved for non-valvular atrial fibrillation. So then um, I think a lot of people got out of that that, that if your um, patient has moderate aortic stenosis and atrial fibrillation, you really can't be prescribing, uh, you know, a direct oral anticoagulant. That's really not true. That they are basically contraindicated specifically in in mitral stenosis and in, with prosthetic heart valves, mechanical heart valves. They can be prescribed uh, to patients with aortic stenosis, mitral regurgitation, tricuspid regurgitation, uh, and even in patients with um, with bioprosthetic heart valves who have uh, concomitant atrial fibrillation. So I guess as far as deprescribing goes, if somebody comes in you know, on rivaroxaban with uh, severe mitral stenosis and atrial fibrillation, I would certainly deprescribe that and, and prescribe warfarin. The bigger trend was studied in mechanical mitral valve and there was increased thrombotic events. And I believe that's why that's the big, I don't even think they've tried the other ones and well, probably known as the guts to do it, right? Right. You know what I think about the, the bigger both, trend. Both increased thrombotic events and increased bleeding compared mm-hmm. to warfarin. So it's kind of a double, a double, double. no-no and that yeah. tri- the trial was stopped prematurely. Yeah. Okay. Any thoughts on the uh, factor 10A inhibitors? Uh, I'm not aware of any trials that are enrolling um, patients with uh, mechanical valves with anti 10A inhibitors. So I I may be off by by a month or so, but at least I checked uh, a month or two ago on clinicaltrials.gov and there weren't any trials. Mm. Um, I think there's a little bit of a movement towards... um, studying slightly less thrombogenic mechanical heart valves and, and studying dual antiplatelet therapy instead of uh, anti-10A inhibitors. Those trials are ongoing, and I think we'll, we'll hear more in the next year or two. Okay. So this was just, this is from a purely, like, you know, primary care doctor in your office, and you have somebody who's on warfarin, and they've got a valve replacement. Have you got target levels for INRs that you're wanting the doctors to aim for, whether they've got a mechanical valve or a bioprosthetic valve? Yeah, so for bioprosthetic valves, the answer is relatively simple. Uh, the, the guidelines suggest anticoagulating patients with bioprosthetic valves for the first three months after valve replacement, after which um, low-dose aspirin is sufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there the target is, uh, INR target is uh, two to three. With, with mechanical heart valves, uh, it really depends on the type of valve and the location of valve for um, for aortic valve position, mechanical heart valves, the INR target is again two to three, and in the mitral position, it's uh, two and a half to three and a half. 
you know, there are other targets for older mechanical heart valves. And if you still have anybody in your practice with a, with a ball and cage valve, I, I don't have a single one of those patients. <laughs> and we certainly Thanks. don't put valves in anymore. One of the, um, there is a caveat, uh, there, there's a newer uh, generation of mechanical heart valves. Uh, one is called the ONX valve, O-N-X valve, and it's less thrombogenic. And so for the ONX valve in the aortic position, it is acceptable to have an INR of 1.5 to 2. Wow. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Hmm. I would also remind, every, I guess, the audience, um, that we shouldn't forget aspirin. So for all mechanical valves, patients should also be on, on aspirin in addition to warfarin, and low-dose aspirin is sufficient. Eli, we plan to end on the uh, big-ticket item, which would be talking about TAVR uh, for aortic stenosis versus the traditional surgery. But before we get into that, I know Kate wanted to ask you some stuff about uh, the endocarditis. Right, Kate? Yeah, so... um I think, you know, so many people have um, had, like, been told, you know, years previously that they've got a, a heart murmur. And in the past, they've been given antibiotics by their dentist if they've had a procedure. And they come back to the, doc- to the dentist's office and he says, oh, we don't do that anymore. So can you just run through very briefly why the guidelines have changed and what the, the new sort of, like, you know, guidelines are for prophylaxis? Sure. So, so the new guidelines are relatively simple, and they say that patients should get prophylactic antibiotics before um, before procedures which should which which reasonably result in transient bacteremia. Basically, in two large cases, one is when they have a prosthetic valve, and that includes uh, mitral annuloplasty, and if they've had endocarditis before. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other, you know, smaller uh, populations of patients, including transplant patients and people with defects near prosthetic patches, which are a minority of patients. But basically, prosthetic valves and prior endocarditis. Now, we, we could we could discuss the data or lack thereof behind those guidelines for a long time and argue about whether or not this is enough data to recommend it. But these are consensus guidelines, uh, and it's reasonable to uh, prophylax these patients. You know, I, I have I have to say I have a lot of patients who have gotten their amoxicillin for the last forty years prior to every dental cleaning, <laughs> and they absolutely refuse to stop it. Yep. And uh, and as much as I respect my infectious disease colleagues and all the science behind kind of unnecessary antibiotics, uh, I, I usually just um, just wimp. You know, wimp. <laughs> I was. It, it, it's okay. It's that easier not take to your, yeah. take your amoxicillin. It's not worth a fight. Kate had sent me some pre-reading that, and she highlighted a paragraph where it was like someone was ranting about how during normal toothbrushing you'd be just as bacteremic as during a lot of these dental procedures, and no one, you know, bear, we don't think people get endocarditis from that. So why would we prophylaxis when prophylax when they go to the dentist? So I, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, of course, of course. You know, my my favorite. I've never actually taken time to figure out whether this is uh, true or not. This is the original. Bacteremia study, uh, bacteremia during toothbrushing study was done on, on medical mm-hmm. students who were, um, who basically were asked to brush their teeth and they had blood cultures drawn every five minutes or so, <laughs> a couple hours, I presume by a fresh stick every time. And uh, bacteremia Jeez, wasn't demonstrated. I'm not sure if it's true, but uh, maybe I'll look it up after today's video. I hope it's true. Oh, this that's so great. For the advent of IRBs, there's just no way. <laughs> Sounds good enough to be true. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's how they did the study on uh, uh, internal mammary artery ligation. Uh, was it? There was no IRB for that one. So, right. uh, anyway, um, we've actually got um, the the prophylaxis guidelines that we can put those in the show notes if you want. Yes, can't we? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Kate. Yeah. How about <laughs> uh, we quickly talk about uh, it? Does rheumatic heart disease is that still is that still a thing? Eli, is that still a thing? <laughs> Depends on depends on what you define as a thing. It's still pretty much a thing. <laughs> yeah. So rheumatic heart disease, I think, remains uh, remains very much a thing. And uh, you know, here in America, we certainly see it in in some of our native-born populations, although less frequently than in our immigrant populations. New England Journal um, had a nice um, article about maybe two months ago that's worth looking at about epidemiology. Uh, rheumatic heart disease in the world, and it, it, there's a nice map that maybe you can put on the website um, as a as a JPEG or as a as a PDF file 
that shows the areas of the world most affected by rheumatic heart disease. And they're sort of what you'd expect. South Asia, the, you know, the, um, um, the Indian Peninsula, the, um, uh, and then Southeast Asia, Oceania, and then um, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, all, of these, um, all of these areas are heavily affected by uh, rheumatogenic uh, streptococcus epidemics and, and consequently valve disease. Uh, and, and as we have continued immigration into this country, um, which we'll hopefully um, continue to have, um, <laughs> um, uh, but but you can feel free to cut that out, I guess. Well, that's <laughs> but, your. It, it's up to you. Well, I could keep it in. Oh, I'm absolutely <laughs> for keeping it in. Okay. Um, but in any case, uh, we, we certainly see lots of patients uh, in clinic with with sequelae of uh, rheumatic. Um, valvulitis, most notably with the mitral stenosis and mitral regurgitation. And mitral stenosis in particular presents some uh, interesting and, and unique challenges because you can, of course, treat a lot of patients with mitral stenosis with medications for quite a while. And then the treatment for mitral stenosis can often be minimally invasive with balloon valvuloplasty. Uh, and, and unlike uh, with aortic stenosis, valvuloplasty in the mitral position can, can produce uh, in experienced hands, very long-lasting, satisfying result uh, for many, many, many years, and can be repeated several times. Um, and I was you know, looking my, at that through your slides. They actually, they actually go through the septum and down that way. Is that is that that's not an arterial stick necessarily? Uh, it, it's 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 never an arterial stick. Actually, what we do is we go through the uh, uh, through the femoral vein. We go up into the right atrium, make a transeptal puncture and deliver um, what's called an inaway balloon through the mitral valve, which we then inflate and um, really crack the commissures on both sides to, uh, to dilate the mitral valve. And the, the issue there is the mitral valve is rarely calcified. It's just sort of thickened and, and stuck together, almost like a, you want to call it the blepharitis of the, of the mitral valve. <laughs> <laughs> and if, you, if you can, if you can uncrack it with the, uh, with the, uh, with a balloon, the, the results are actually quite satisfying. Okay, awesome. I've got something really, like, really interesting um, about um, mitral valvulitis, say, because that was like first described by um, Kerry Franklin Coombs, you know, like the Kerry Coombs murmur guy, uh-huh. and and he he was um, like a British Army doctor uh, in the First World War, and he was stationed over in Egypt and Mesopotamia, and he actually saw so many cases of a transient like valvulitis associated with like strep infections that he heard this transient murmur that obviously would get better as the valvulitis improved and that was the Kerry Coombs murmur and of course you know we, we really don't hear that now because we're not really <laughs> looking for it thinking about it right but, uh, yep. that was not 1924 he wrote a book about rheumatic heart disease yes yes yeah I, actually I read that book it's, it's fascinating and yeah. we don't hear that murmur because that, that's really not the murmur of rheumatic heart disease as much as the murmur of acute valvulitis. And so you yeah. really have to um, catch somebody in the throes of acute rheumatic fever, which yeah. is, is much, much less common. In fact, not very commonly recognized anymore in this country yeah. because it's so rare. Um, I will, again, uh, just for the listeners who aren't, aren't uh, used to caring for patients with rheumatic heart disease, remember that the recurrent rheumatic fever is really what sort of gets you uh, and gets your valves. And the reason why so many young people uh, in, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa have a fairly advanced case of rheumatic um, heart disease isn't because their first acute rheumatic fever was particularly severe or anything like this. It's because they've had uh, recurrent episodes of rheumatic fever, which uh, which further damages the valve. So, so anybody who you, you see who has evidence of, of, of rheumatic valve disease um, it needs to have prophylaxis against recurrent rheumatic fever. Mm. Um, and uh, that, that's usually accomplished by uh, giving him penicillin, either orally or by um, um, monthly injection of benzathine penicillin. I think we need to move on with the last few minutes here. Everyone's been talking past few years trans aortic valve replacement. So the, the TAVR, as it's called, can you can you tell us where are we at with that? Should should everyone be getting that now? Are we still is there still a role for surgery? Everybody. <laughs> everyone with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis. Yeah, can you talk about that? Sure. So so, um, so the simple answer is no. Uh, not everybody should be getting this, um, <laughs> and uh, but a lot of people should be getting this, 
And I guess that's where we'll end. No, no, I'll, I'll elaborate. <laughs> I mean, it's been around for about 15 years. Um, and I, if, if I'm not mistaken, the, the last year or last two years were the first years when in the United States there were more transcatheter aortic valves than surgical aortic valve replacements. So the, the, the lines have, have, have crossed. It, it, it is a certainly a less invasive procedure than surgical aortic valve replacement by by no means is it a simple um, endeavor. Um, as with a lot of new technologies, we've started with uh, testing this on the highest risk patients where there is the um, highest, perhaps highest margin of benefit. Uh, so in inoperable patients uh, or uh, certainly in inoperable patients, transcatheter aortic valve is better than medical therapy and that's been studied in the partner trial. Medical therapy for aortic stenosis, we previously mentioned, is, isn't really that advanced. It's really nothing. <laughs> and in high-risk patients and intermediate-risk uh, patients for uh, open-heart surgery, transcatheter valve procedures are not inferior to surgical therapy. So they're, for all intents and purposes, uh, about as good as surgical therapies. We don't know um, the outcomes necessarily in the vast majority of patients, uh, which are the low risk patients, so some of the um, some of the older patients without a lot of comorbidities, whose risk uh, of major complications in aortic valve surgery is really in the low single digits. And the reason it's not so obvious that they should be getting transcatheter aortic valve replacements is because TAVRs are associated with with a not an insignificant risk of pacemaker placement, vascular complications, and stroke. These are all non-zero, especially rate of pacemaker placement consistently is higher than with surgical valve replacements. And also, we are not exactly sure about the longevity of those valves. Um, it seems that in the kind of a three to five year um, period, those valves hold up quite nicely, but we certainly don't have any data, um, you know, 15 years and beyond. So until we have the, those data, it's hard to recommend TAVR for um, everyone. I, I will say, just to put it in perspective, though, that we've started uh, with having these patients um, routinely go to the ICU and stay not really, um, you know, for, 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 for time periods in the hospital, not significantly different from the surgical patients. And now uh, this is done, still done in the in the hybrid operating room in our institution, but these patients routinely get extubated in the operating room and go straight to a telemetry floor and, and typically go home in just a few days feeling pretty well. Right. It, it looked like a lot of the complications were bleeding or, va- vas- or vascular complications because it's such a large apparatus that you're accessing, right, it, to, to put this in? Yeah, these, two, these used to be very large sheets, although um, we're now... Uh, we're now uh, commercially into the third generation of transcatheter aortic valves. Right. The sheaths have gotten significantly smaller, so vascular, vascular complications have drastically decreased. Also, there's a very steep learning curve there. So, mm-hmm. as as a lot of centers have crossed the you know five to six hundred procedure threshold, really, there's been a lot of um, a lot of uh, learning and and the vascular complications, as well as other complications, have really uh, decreased dramatically. You know all. Th- th- TAVR versus surgical aortic valve replacement is all is all in patient selection. So, so patients coming to your office and saying, uh, you know, oh, I just want I just want a catheter and not the surgery is really not enough to 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 send them to TAVR. This is where you need a surgical opinion. This is where you need a really yeah. a multidisciplinary heart team to um, evaluate the patient. Right. No, that, that's perfect. It actually segues with the question we just got on Twitter. Uh, is, is is there a, a valve board or a multidisciplinary team that evaluates these on a case by case basis, whether uh, endoscopic versus open repair, or how do you how do you typically handle that decision? Did you really just do that, Paul? Did you yeah, really absolutely. just take my question? And yes, e- Eli, I mean, you weren't doing anything. Eli, I was going to say, I think for me, one of the one of the parts of practice that has always been a little bit confusing was with aortic stenosis. the The echo says it's severe. But, but you're really not sure if the patient's symptoms are from that or if it's from their like 20 other comor- comorbid conditions that they have. That bit seems somewhat object, uh, subjective. How, how do you handle that in your practice? You know, you get someone say they're, they're fatigued, they're not necessarily having syncope or angina and uh, or heart failure, and you're just kind of wondering like, does this person feel bad all the time because this is the valve or is it something else? Right. 
Well, it's tough. It's tough to answer. There's not really a single answer to this. This is where it helps to um, really go back to the patient's uh, primary care physician, somebody who's been hopefully following them for long. I mean, I would say if they feel exactly the same as they felt for the last 30 years, <laughs> and objectively nothing but the valve is different, uh, this may not be indeed the valve. But but there is, there is a role for functional testing, certainly. Um, you know, when I went to medical school, which was not a horribly long time ago, but, you know, a while ago, uh, I was taught that uh, stress testing patients with severe aortic stenosis is absolutely contraindicated, right? <laughs> you guys remember hearing this as well. Yes, but it's really of not true anymore. Uh, it, it is really true of sim- severely symptomatic patients. These are not the people you want to um, put on a Bruce protocol and sort of check on them 15 minutes later, see if they're still running. Um, but very careful stress testing in patients with who are asymptomatic or patients with relatively ambiguous um, symptoms is very valuable. You know, if somebody says that they're doing very well uh, and their their aortic stenosis is completely asymptomatic, but then they they go for you know two and a half mets and they have to stop because of shortness of breath, um, it, it's probably not truly asymptomatic if they develop hypotension, ventricular arrhythmias. And I think it also helps to uh, sometimes differentiate whether their symptoms are, you know, orthopedic, pulmonary, or um, or cardiac in nature. Um, we, we do employ a variety of modalities, including cardiopulmonary stress testing, pure pulmonary testing. And, you know, frankly, sometimes uh, we end up um, bringing these cases to a multidisciplinary valve conference where we have uh, you know, primary care doctors and professional cardiologists and uh, and uh, geriatricians and nephrologists and pulmonologists and sometimes um, even cardiac pathologists, for better or for worse, <laughs> and we all try to decide. And and th- these are sometimes very difficult cases. You know, we 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 have done things like we we do um, a valvuloplasty in these patients and see if they improve. Understanding this is a temporary measure, but if somebody improves dramatically after their valve area is temporarily a little bit larger you probably have your answer. It's probably the valve. If they feel absolutely no difference, despite a larger valve, it's probably not the valve. Sometimes you just, you sometimes you just have to bite the bullet. Okay, great. Yeah, that's that. I I just have always struggled with that. And, uh, it seems like, um, I I guess everyone struggles with that. It sounds like if you're you're needing like teams of people to figure out if this, if it's the right (laughs) thing to do to replace this person's valve. Okay. I think for TAVR, I mean, I think the, the message should be you always need a team of people. This should never be an individual decision. In fact, even insurance companies agree, but I, I rarely agree with insurance companies. <laughs> In order to get coverage for, for TAVR, you really need a, a heart team, which oh, is probably the right thing. One of the few right, correct, yeah. correct moves there. Excellent. All right. Well, I'd, I'd like to thank you so much for, for talking with us tonight, Eli, and I'd like to ask you for your take-home points any and uh, and and then we'll we'll uh, end the show here. We'll let you go on with your night. Take home points. I was I wasn't prepared for take home points. Okay. I don't know. I guess the, a couple of take home points are: um, sit down when you talk to your patients. Mm. Um, ask your patients with valve disease to describe their day to figure out whether uh, um, whether they're symptomatic or not. Um, I would say learn the basics of how to read the echo report. We didn't really talk about it very much, but it's worth having your uh, cardiologist come and, and talk to you about echoes uh, briefly. Uh, be aware of some of the uh, newer treatments. Um, use selective uh, antibiotic prophylaxis for endocarditis. Um, d- don't forget to uh, use warfarin and not direct oral anticoagulants for patients with rheumatic heart disease and atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and use uh, many colleagues for for TAVR evaluation. All right, I love it. Uh, any anything you'd like to plug or any asks of the audience? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. All right. That's enough. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. This uh, this this is great. Thank you so much. And uh, Stuart, sorry you didn't get to ask your question from Twitter. That's that's <laughs> that's fine. It's the best night of my life. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure. Honor. Yeah. My honor. Oh right. yeah, you're fantastic. Thank you so much. Kate, we we uh so what do you think the answer was for that case that we gave? You think <laughs> I think she needs a multidisciplinary team to discuss her valve. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the answer. And probably not Taver. If Taver if if, if Taver's only been going on, uh patients are at like five years of, you know, valve with a with a valve, they I guess uh, you probably wouldn't want to put a, a valve with an unknown warranty into a 25-year-old. So she'd well, probably I be looking. What she should do is 
we should get her to check the flying guidelines. Then she can go to Germany and do whatever they do there because they've been doing everything in Europe for longer. <laughs> oh, that's true. Mm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Maverick. Europe Europe definitely is a bit less uh yeah, they're less well, restrictive when you're studying. Yeah. Right. Right. Way to plug Europe there. <laughs> <laughs> Pick of the week is Europe. I'm recommending week, Europe. Europe. Yes. <laughs> the whole continent. Yeah. Mm. Especially okay. Germany. <laughs> All right. Uh is there Kate, is there any Can major you- stuff we missed that you want us to talk like about at the end of the show here? Um um, just the just the add-ons to the show notes. So I think to tell people about the Lippman. Yes. Yeah, Kate, okay, tell yeah. them about that. Okay, so um, th- this is something that's going to go into the show notes, and it is from Lippman Cardiology. Um, in the old days, they'd send you a CD, but now they have an app, and we're going to include a link for that. You can download that, and it will take you through all of the heart valves, all the sounds that they have. Um, it's got questions. It's got a really great educational resource, basically. So you can refresh your memory um, just by listening to um, what all the different moments sound like. It's, it's really excellent. Yeah. And it looks like you also, if people want to, if they're like me and they like to review the physiology of heart valves, then they can uh, do that on Khan Academy there. And we'll link to Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's about nine separate videos which take you through the different valves and the pathology and, you know, start to finish. So, And they're all just a few minutes long, so they're really bite-sized and, and really accessible. And Stuart looks upset. My cats have learned to open the door to my office. How in the world? <laughs> I, what, no, I... All right, I'm going to end the show. I'm going to end the show, Stuart. <laughs> I don't think the audience wants to hear about your cat problems. Or maybe I, they do, but they I don't. Do. So. I disagree. <laughs> This has been another episode of the Curbsiders. Uh, Paul? (laughs) Yummy? (laughs) (laughs) That's not there. Sorry, I was getting the app. I was distracted. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. That yummy, yummy. It's right there. (laughs) You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. I think this is the first time I've had And please sign up to receive our weekly show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. Send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Give us feedback. Tell us what you love or hate about the show. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto, at Dr. Watto on Twitter. You know my 15-year-old daughter followed you on Instagram. The (laughs) Curbsiders, that is. Not you personally. (laughs) She's she's like, I heard about this Curbsiders. Is that you, Dad? I'm like, oh my gosh. It's ridiculous. Ladies first. Go ahead, Kate. (laughs) Um, um, (laughs) Dr. Kate Grant. Uh, Stuart, I'm sorry. Kate, Kate, I'm sorry to Dr. Kate Grant. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I Stuart, are you implying that your daughter doesn't know that you've been doing a podcast for uh, over well, two she years now? No, she she didn't know that we were on Instagram oh. too, because I never told her that. Okay, and she's like, what is this? That's probably more valid. All right, she said they stole your logo. Okay. Anyways, Paul, are you still here? And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And good night. Yeah, yeah, this is Dr. Stuart. <laughs> I didn't say anything. All right. just be like two or three sentences it can just be like we talked you know that we wanted to do this episode and here are some of the things we highlight and i'll read eli's bio and then we'll be then we're done yeah don't worry no stress it just has to be very very good that's all so just (laughs) (laughs) okay all right okay let's go for it all right she doesn't sound perturbed at all